Welcome to Tucker Carlson today. So in the U.S., we don't talk a lot about vaccines. That debate seems to have kind of ended, but the data continue to pour in, and some of them are very troubling, and it's hard to make sense of them. In this country, there have been a few prominent physicians to weigh in on the topic of what we're seeing, but not enough to break through the media blockade against anyone who questions received wisdom on the, on the matter of vaccines. But in the UK, something really interesting has happened. One of that country's top cardiologists and best-known cardiologists, Dr. Rasim Malhotra, went from promoting the vaccine on television to questioning the physical effects on healthy people of the vaccine. And that change came after his own father passed away unexpectedly. So this is an incredibly interesting story that has implications probably for every person watching this. And so we are honored to have that doctor join us now. Dr. Walensher, thank you very much. Thank you, Tucker. So can you just give us, root us in your story just for just a moment. Where are you from? What have you spent the last 25 years doing, et cetera? Yeah, yeah. so um, I grew up in Manchester, in yes. England. Yep. Um, and I went to uh, medical school in Edinburgh, in yep. Scotland. And then for the last 14 years or so, I've been practicing cardiology and worked as a cardiologist in London. Yes. And uh, in that time, over, say, the last 10 years, I've uh, done a lot of research on looking into the causes of how heart disease develops and shifting the paradigm, the understanding of heart disease, uh, focus a lot on lifestyle. But in that process, Tucker, I have realized that a lot of the information that doctors receive when it comes to clinical decision making has been corrupted by vested interests, in particular, big pharma in, in this particular discussion. But interestingly, um, at the very beginning of the uh, the, so, you, so you, uh, I'm starting to interrupt. Yeah. First of all, it's interesting to hear a, a practicing physician say that. And, and I should also tell our viewers that you've, you've been involved in discussions about public health in Great Britain, not even just about cardiology, but about obesity and lifestyle, as you said. So you've looked at this carefully. When did you conclude that pharma or these organized interests were affecting medical decisions? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I qualified as a doctor in 2001. So I've been yes. a practicing doctor for over 20 years. And what I noticed working the National Health Service, Tucker, yeah. over, over many years was more and more people were coming in with chronic diseases, multiple conditions. They weren't getting better. At the same time, we're hearing global news from the WHO in 2004 about obesity being a global pandemic. And I tried to then understand what was going on. And for me, certainly about 10, 12 years ago, I looked at the situation and thought, if we don't get on top of this, our healthcare systems are going to collapse. So we're already under a lot of pressure. So I started to investigate what was going on. And for me, as a cardiologist, my primary interest was in heart disease. And despite all of modern, so-called modern science, we had never really made big inroads into tackling heart disease or certainly eradicating it. So my original research was to look into the heart disease issue. And in that process, I, I, I learned very quickly that the original paradigm around high cholesterol and the prescription of statin drugs, which is one of the most lucrative drugs in the history of medicine, was based upon very flawed science. Wait a second. Wait a second. This is off topic, but I'm just interested. I thought statin <laughs> drugs fixed heart disease. Well, it's a really good question. So um, when one looks at statins, you need to understand what your benefit is. So people are under the impression they're a miracle drug. That's a way to prevent heart disease. That was my impression, yeah. What I did was looked at the data and broke it down in a way that is easily understandable for people. So, for example, Tucker, most people taking statins, and it's estimated almost uh, a billion people are prescribed statins globally now. It's a huge industry. Most people who take statins are taking it for prevention of heart attacks. Right. But even when you look at that data, which is mostly industry-sponsored data, so let's just... If we accept that as gospel truth, although it's probably biased, for an individual taking a statin, their benefit in preventing a heart attack okay, is about 1%, 1 in 100. So if you came to me and you said, Doc, I'm thinking about taking a statin, I don't have heart disease, but I think it might prevent one, I will say, okay, let's discuss it. And then I will tell you this information and then help you make an informed decision. You might look at that and think, 1%? That doesn't sound that great. I think I'll try something else, like lifestyle or diet or whatever. So that's what I published on. And over the years... 1%? Yeah, it's only about 1% benefit. If you've had a heart attack, it's about 1 in 40 in preventing a further heart attack, right, over a five-year period, and 1 in 83 in prolonging your life. So what I wanted to do is cut through the misinformation so we, tra so we have informed discussions with patients. Well, I hope there are no downsides to statin drugs if a billion well, people are taking them. Well, nothing serious, but things that interfere with the quality of life. And, of course, a lot of what we do as doctors is to relieve suffering and improve people's quality of life. So maybe at 
you know, it, it varies. Estimates from 10 to maybe 40% of people at some point taking a statin will have symptoms which are most common, like fatigue, muscle aches, that interferes with the quality of their life. And that's when you have the discussion with the patient, say, listen, I want you to know that this is a benefit for you, potentially, but if you stop the statin and say, I don't know, decide to eat real food and do a bit of exercise and get better sleep, you're probably going to be in a much better position in preventing a heart attack because 80% of heart disease, Tucker, is purely lifestyle and environment related. Well, that is not at all the story I was told at all. That's interesting. So um, that'd be a whole different fascinating se segment. But so watching that, coming to that conclusion... Is that what convinced you that maybe our perceptions are shaped by the drug companies? Yeah, if, if the most prescribed drug and thought to be one of the most effective drugs in the history of medicine was actually not that great, the, the benefits are marginal, it got me to investigate further into the whole of the medical <laughs> industrial complex. And then a few things happened at the same time. The British Medical Journal in 2012 launched a campaign called Too Much Medicine. And JAMA Internal Medicine in this country also launched a similar campaign called Less Is More. Just to give you a broad picture on this, sucker, so for, for the viewers... It's estimated that prescribed medications, what your doctor prescribes for you because of side effects, is the third most common cause of death globally after heart disease and cancer. So when one looks at our healthcare system... What? Yes, absolutely. That was actually um, analysis done by one of the co-founders of the prestigious Cochrane Collaboration, Peter Gosher. So once I understood all these things, I then thought, well, hold on a minute. Why are patients not getting informed consent? What's at the root of the problem? And the way I bring it back in a very simple, elegant way of describing it it's something called the evidence-based medicine triad. So as doctors, as healthcare pr practitioners, we want to improve our patient outcomes, yes? That means uh, treat illness, manage risks, and relieve suffering. And to do that, there's a nice triad that was put together by the father of the evidence-based medicine movement, David Sackett, in 1996. And it basically means you use your clinical expertise, your experience, the best available evidence, and last but not least, Tucker, taking into consideration patient individual preferences and values. That's informed consent. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out if there's any, something wrong with any of those three components or all of them, you're not going to get the best outcomes. That's right. Evidence-based medicine, unfortunately, has become an illusion because it's been hijacked by commercial interests. So if one looks at the best available evidence, and I cite somebody who I would probably call a Stephen Hawking-like figure of medicine, John Ioannidis, professor of medicine at Stanford, he is the most cited medical scientist in the world. And he basically published a, a paper not so long ago, essentially suggesting that most medical research is at very least misleading, if not false. And the reason for that is the drug companies who actually determine a lot of the research that doctors make clinical decisions on have biased and corrupted the information, which what that means is you have an exaggerated view of the benefits and the safety of those medications. Now, how do we bring this back to the vaccine? In January 2021, just after the original rollout of the vaccine around the world, I helped out in a vaccine center. So, you know, I'm in my early 40s. I'm not particularly high risk. And I was one of the first to take two doses of the Pfizer vaccine because I helped out in a vaccine center and they had the leftovers. And about a month later, um, a well-known film director in the UK, she's known over here as well, called Gorinda Chudder. She's behind movies like Bennett Light Beckham, Blinded by the Light on Bruce Springsteen. Yes. She's a friend of mine and she contacted me and she was receiving all these blogs and bits of information essentially suggesting there was a problem with the vaccine. But most of it, and I still believe this to be true, sounded like complete nonsense. Microchips in the vaccine, right. you know, depopulation agenda, all that kind of thing. And I said, listen, you're, you know, she was overweight in the middle age. I said, listen, um, vaccines, and, and I've, I've probably been one of the most strongest advocates of exposing pharmaceutical industry corruption, if you like, over the last 10 years in the UK and maybe even around the world. For me, Tucker, despite that information... Vaccines, and this, I still believe this to be the case, traditional vaccines are some of the safest pharmacological interventions in the history of medicine. We talked about it earlier. You've had vaccines. I've had many vaccines. I've, I've had scars many on my vaccines. Absolutely. All my children have had and, many vaccines. And right. I still believe this to be true. Yeah, I'm not against vaccines. So, so I went on Good Morning Britain on February 2021 because she tweeted out that I had convinced her to take the vaccine. And I said, listen, let's understand where the vaccine hesitancy is coming from. On one side, there are rational reasons drug industry corruption over the years. People are not trusting of the drug industry. But the irrational reasons are the ones I've discussed already. And I said, let's understand that vaccines are still one of the safest. Tucker, I couldn't fathom the possibility, although I was a little bit skeptical about the benefit, and we're going to come on to that in a minute. I couldn't fathom the possibility that a vaccine could do any damage whatsoever, any significant damage to the body. Then the situation evolved. And what happened was extraordinary. 
First and foremost, um, a friend of mine, I won't name him, very eminent cardiologist in the UK. I met him in April, a few months later, and he said to me, and he's in his late 30s, and he said, Asim, I've not had the vaccine. And I said, okay. I said, he said, something troubles me. I said, what is it? He said, I looked at Pfizer's original trial that led to the approval, the randomized control trial that led to the approval of, yes. the, of the vaccine globally. He said, in the supplementary appendix of that trial, you can see, and I've obviously verified this, there were four cardiac arrests in the vaccine group and one in the placebo. He said it could be uh, spurious, it could be just a coincidence, but he said if this signal is real, we are going to see a real problem going forward in the next couple of years, and I want to wait and see what happens. Then in July 2021, 20, uh, my father, who was the, um, a retired general practitioner, honorary vice president of the British Medical Association, he himself also had been quite a strong proponent of the vaccine, you know, uh, the rollout, etc. Um, he suffered an unexplained cardiac arrest. I knew my dad very well. He was super fit. You know, um, he was a sportsman. He was walking 10,000 steps during lockdown. His diet was good. I knew his cardiac status was fine. And then he suffered a cardiac arrest. And uh, I ordered a post-mortem because it didn't make sense to me. And the oh, post so he, was, he, was, he died from it? He did, he did. I mean, I was actually on the phone to him when two of his neighbors who were doctors came around. He had a cardiac arrest in front of them. And I basically went into kind of cardiology mode because I've published research and looked at out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. And if it's witnessed and you call the ambulance in time, more than 50% of cases a patient will survive. I said, yes. don't worry, we'll, we'll sort him out. And because the NHS was under so much strain, the ambulance took 30 minutes. So I was on FaceTime when they put the... Oh, come you know, on. So I saw Flatline. I just told them to stop because I knew. I mean, this is what I've done throughout my career. Yes. So um, it was obviously very... How old was it, it your was, father? He was 73. Um, and for me personally, Tucker, as well, it was quite devastating because he was the last surviving member of my immediate family. I lost my mum three years earlier. I lost my brother when I was young. So it was like, okay, I'm now essentially alone in terms of my immediate family. But I ordered a, a post-mortem, and the post-mortem findings did not make sense. What they, what they found, Tucker, was two of his arteries were critically stenosed. They were severely narrowed. And it didn't make sense because I had heart scans done on him a few years earlier. Routinely, everything was fine. So in my head, I thought, he's had rapid progression of coronary artery disease. I couldn't think of the reason why. I've been involved in research explaining how heart disease develops, how it progresses. And of course, things like poor diet, lack of exercise, and of course, severe psychological stress, and we'll come on to that as well, is a big risk factor. I thought, was he really stressed? Was it because he was bereaved, because he was still struggling with the loss of my mom only a year and a half before? And that was the only explanation I could give, but it didn't sit with me. I didn't, I didn't quite understand it. And then a few months later, I get contacted by a journalist from the Times newspaper. And she said, listen, Dr. Malhotra, you're a pioneer in this field around heart disease, etc. We're hearing reports in Scotland of unexplained 25% increase in heart attacks, right? And they don't know exactly what's going on. And at that time, Tucker, I hadn't linked the vaccine, but I said, with lockdowns, with everything that happened, and we know people's diets got worse, even though COVID was a disease that exploited people's poor diets and obesity, um, and the psychological stress, I said, I, I predicted anyway, even a year before, I said, we're probably going to see a rise in heart attacks, right? Not to this massive degree, but we would probably see it. And I said, it's probably because of those factors. Diets got worse, stress is yeah. high. And she said to me, well, we're hearing the reports. Um, what do you think about the vaccine, Dr. Martra? And I said, listen, as a good scientist, it would be unscientific of me to completely exclude that possibility. But I said, it's unlikely. Two weeks later, a couple of things happened in succession. Right. And this is where the story gets very, very um, uh, almost melodramatic, if you like. One was um, a cardiothoracic surgeon called Stephen Gundry in the States published an abstract in the journal Circulation, which is the premier cardiac cardiology journal of the world, one of the most premier journals. And he found, monitoring hundreds of his patients, that after two doses of the mRNA vaccine, Pfizer or Moderna, there were increased markers of inflammation linked to coronary artery disease increasing the risk after just 10 weeks of someone's risk of, say, having a heart attack of 11% in five years, right, suddenly jumped to 25% within Ooh. two months. Now, just to put that in perspective, Tucker, if I decided today I was going to smoke 40 cigarettes, I was going to completely stop exercising and just gorge on junk food, I couldn't increase my risk even close to that in that Seriously? space of time. Absolutely. Right. So I was like, OK, one bit of data Okay, is it replicated? Is it coincidence? Whatever. As a scientist, you need to look at other signals. Then I got contacted by a cardiologist in a very prestigious British institution. I won't name the institution to protect him. I know this person very well. He has very high integrity. I've worked with him for many, many years. 
and he said, Asim, there's something I've got to tell you, and I'm very upset about it. I said, what is it? He says, in, what, in this institution, the cardiology research had found by accident, looking at coronary imaging, so imaging of the heart, they found in vaccinated versus unvaccinated huge markers of coronary inflammation, right? A signal from the mRNA vaccines. They then had a meeting, and they sat around, and they said, listen, the, the lead researcher said, we're not going to publish these findings because it may affect our funding from the pharmaceutical industry. Oh, come on. So this person was very upset. I then now had my dad's situation. Um, I had this Someone heart attack. said that out loud? In the closed meeting, they said it, yeah, in a closed meeting of those researchers. Did anyone stop and say, I'm sorry, that's immoral? Well, what I, I think people were quite upset. A lot of them were juniors, right, junior doctors and junior researchers. And, of course, they don't want to call out their boss. You can understand the situation. It's not easy. It's like a, of course, they should have done, absolutely. But oh. I had, so then I went on G. I thought, okay, there's a signal here. I went on GB News. So this was um, in uh, October, November of 2021. And I just said, listen, we've got these signals. We know there's an increase in heart attacks. And there's more than enough evidence to call for an investigation into this. And that's all I said. That interview went viral. In the meantime, behind the scenes, um, a couple of medical establishment bodies contacted me because of a number of anonymous complaints from doctors that I was bringing the medical profession into disrepute by spreading so-called anti-vax disinformation, despite this evidence being very clear. So I thought, okay. Despite the fact that you had worked in a COVID vax clinic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, exactly. No, exactly. It doesn't make sense, right? I mean, right. I'm also Good Morning Britain telling people the vaccine is essentially yeah. safe, not to worry about it. So it doesn't make sense. So I thought, okay, I dealt with that four weeks, you know, and I, I wrote a kind of response. I had support from other people and it was fine. They left me alone and left me with a warning, okay? So um, I then said, okay, what can I do here? This is around the time in the UK, they also announced they were going to bring a mandate for National Health Service staff. And I knew that there was something fishy going on because one, we've got a vaccine that has clearly potential harms of significance. We know that the uh, virus had mutated by then and become milder. And certainly Omicron, I'll come on to that in a minute, is probably no worse than a bad flu or a bad cold, okay? Um, so I thought, what can I do here? Because there's a big problem and it needs to be, in my view, I thought it needs to be suspended and we need an inquiry. But it's a very difficult mountain to move. Everybody, have been, people have been indoctrinated, right? Doctors think this is completely safe and effective. So I decided that I was going to spend several months critically appraising the data and try and publish it in a medical journal. And in that time, um, Tucker, and what's interesting in my role as an activist is I think there is something very uh, cathartic and powerful about speaking the truth. When I went on Good Mo uh, GB News, That's right. two Pfizer whistleblowers contacted me right, and told me what was going on. Um, I then spoke to uh, three investigative medical journalists, and I then reached out to very eminent scientists in Oxford, Stanford, and Harvard, who are not, when I say eminent, I mean eminent of integrity, people who are not directly linked to the drug industry, who could give me more of a kind of um, sanguine look at the data so I could verify what I was, what I was going to publish. I spent several months, went through external peer review, and then it was published a couple of months ago in the journal called Journal of Insulin Resistance. I chose that journal because, one, they don't take money from industry. And we'll come on to that in a minute. We'll come on to that shortly about the problems of pharma, too much pharma influence over medical decision making. And because they also allowed me to write 10,000 words. I wanted to walk people through the situation. What does the data on the vaccine tell us in absolute terms? So what's your absolute benefit? What are the harms? Right. I'll come on to that. And then how did we get it so wrong? Why did we get it so wrong? And what are the solutions moving forward? So when we, uh, I then analyzed the information to look at, okay, what is the true benefit of the vaccine, Tucker, right? And in preventing, say, COVID death from real world data in the UK, which you can extrapolate around the world. Of course. And what I found was this, during the Delta wave, which was last year, more lethal than what we've got now, you and I broke it down by age group, vaccinated versus unvaccinated, you had to vaccinate 230 people over the age of 80 to prevent one COVID death. Over and the this, age of 80? Over the age of 80. So this is the highest risk people. 520 if you're between 70 and 80. And then it becomes into the thousands as you get younger. Now, this is during the Delta way, which is more lethal. And by the way, Tucker, there is a caveat here. This is likely still best case scenario because if you're comparing, this is real world data, a lot of, there's something called healthy user bias. Many people who took the vaccine are healthier than people who are vaccine hesitant. Um, a chap called Carl Hennigan, Professor Carl Hennigan, who is the director of the Center of Evidence-Based Medicine in Oxford, he told me that 
he had a couple of his patients in the 80s who had terminal cancer. They chose not to have the vaccine. They end up dying from COVID. They were already higher risk anyway, if that makes sense, right? So you can't compare a healthy 80-year-old with an unhealthy or people who's, uh, someone who's, un- who's vulnerable, another 80-year-old, right? But this is what the real-world data I was looking at. So again, likely best-case scenario. What about Omicron? We looked at data from earlier this year during the wave of Omicron in the UK from January onwards for three months. Wait for this. If you're over 80 for Omicron, you have to vaccinate 7,300 people to prevent one COVID death. And then it just goes into, it becomes ridiculous. As in, the younger you get, the more people you have to vaccinate. So the question then is, what are the harms and on what quality of evidence? On the best quality evidence, something called randomized control trial data, a number of scientists, uh, Robert Kaplan from Stanford, Peter Doshi, the associate editor of the BMJ, Joseph Freeman, lead author I've spoken to, works um, in New York, and he's uh, involved in research in, in one of the ERs there. They were able to get access to Pfizer and Moderna's original trials and new data. So let's just put this in perspective. These are the trials that led to the approval of the vaccines in the first place, okay, based upon this data that was done by Pfizer and Moderna. They found that the risk of having a serious adverse event from the original trials, disability, life-changing event, hospitalization, was higher than being hospitalized with COVID. So serious adverse event from the vaccine, there was a higher risk in the original trials of it causing a problem than it was you were to be hospitalized. So in other words, in layman's terms, it's more dangerous to take the vaccine than not. For most people, that's what we've concluded. That's what I've concluded. That's how it appears. And that rate, um, Tucker, is at least one in 800, because this is from Pfizer and Moderna's own trials. One serious adverse event per 800 people. So can I just ask a very bitter question? We've had those trial data since the beginning, correct? We have. Right. Yes. So why... You know, we're moving on two years now. Yes. So why am I just hearing this for the first time? Because it's not getting publicized. So they published this data in the peer-reviewed journal Vaccine. So this is good quality. This is the highest quality level of data you can ever have. And then you back it up with VAERS in this country, yes. yellow card system in UK. I've looked at that. This is unprecedented, right? And just historically, Tucker, just to put things in perspective, in 1976 the swine flu vaccine was suspended because it was found to cause Guillain-Barre syndrome, yes. a, a neurological condition, in one in 100,000 people. The rotavirus vaccine in 1999 was suspended because it caused a form of bowel obstruction in kids in one in 10,000. We've got a serious adverse event rate of at least one in 800. And now, since that's evolved, I, when I looked at this research, in the UK, we've had a massive increase in out cardiac arrests. Israel were able to find that there was a link between the mRNA vaccines, and a 25% increase in cardiac arrests and heart attacks in people aged between 16 and 40 that was associated with the vaccine but not with COVID. So it's, it's a no-brainer. So I came out and I published this, these findings and I said, for me, it needs to be suspended pending an inquiry. Nobody should be taking, in my view, this vaccine. The question is, how did this all happen? And the only way to really explain it is to take a step back. I'm a root cause guy, right? So you talk about the evidence-based medicine triad, you look at best available evidence, you go back, right? So what, what, what are clear hard facts to try and understand this? One is drug companies have a fiduciary legal obligation to produce profit for their shareholders. They do not have a legal obligation to give you the best treatment, right? But the real scandals are these. Regulators fail to prevent misconduct by industry. Right. And that doctors, academic institutions, and medical journals collude with industry for financial gain. Let's talk about the regulator. You may come back to me and say... To the detriment of public health. I mean, that's the shocking part. It's not just, you know, if you and I are working our scam or whatever and we're getting rich, but we're not killing people, you know, okay. But people are dying. Like, what? I know. So how do we explain it? Well, first of all, as you may know, the FDA gets 65% of their funding from pharma. Huge conflict of interest. In the UK, our regulator, the MHRA, gets 86% of their funding from pharma. So that's a big problem. And what normally happens is... Um, these trials where the, so the, you know, Pfizer designed the trial, they did their own analysis, they hold on to what we call the raw data, which is often tens of thousands of pages 
on information on every patient involved in the trial, what was happening to them, did they really check side effects properly, etc. They then give summary results to the regulator who then approves it, right? But, but may I just ask a dumb question? Why wouldn't the regulator, since he's making a decision for a country of 340 million people, demand all the data? So they get the data, but they, don't, they probably don't spend time analyzing it properly. And I think also the problem is, as well, is, is financial conflicts of interest, um, Tucker. So we know, for example, in the FDA, between 2006 and 2019, nine of the 10 FDA commissioners went on, when they left the FDA, to get very lucrative jobs with the pharmaceutical industry. It's a revolving door. I think this is a combination of financial conflicts of interest. And to be honest, Tucker, downright incompetence as well. Right. Because this data is very clear. They should have suspended this to be to be perfectly honest with you, with what I've seen now. I think there's more than enough evidence to suggest that Pfizer probably knew, but they don't they don't really care because they're a profit making you know, machine, if you like. Um, but it probably should never have been rolled out in the first place. So how do we. So explain- why isn't the veterinarian who runs Pfizer, Albert Borla, why, why hasn't he been punished for this. I don't understand. Well, so, okay, so let's look at the history of, of punishments of pharma and what they've, what they've done over the years. So we know that between 2009, 2014, most of the top 10 drug companies, including Fiverr, Pfizer, play, paid fines totaling about $14 billion, most of it in the US, for fraud, right? Illegal marketing of drugs, hiding data and harms. One of the most egregious examples was the Vioxx scandal, okay? This was Merck, a drug that was marketed as an anti-inflammatory in 1999, supposed to be better than ibuprofen in terms of causing less stomach problems, right? And what they found, ultimately, it was pulled and they, because it was causing heart. It doubled the risk of heart attacks. It's estimated it caused probably the deaths of 60,000 Americans, which is equivalent, I understand, to the amount of Americans that died in Vietnam. I mean, yeah. it's not a small number. 59,000 died in Vietnam. So it's more than were killed over 11 years of the Vietnam War. Just with one drug that... Now, this is the thing. What's very interesting is um, they were fined. Merck were fined in 2011 following an investigation, um, $950 million. But when one looks at the amount of money they made from the marketing of the drug and all this, what they spent, they probably made a billion dollars in profit, despite this drug, the fact that this drug caused heart attacks, and that Merck scientists knew. So when the investigation occurred, looking at the, all the litigation behind the drug, the chief scientist of Merck, in an internal email in 2000, in March 2000, essentially said, it's unfortunate about the cardiovascular effects of this drug, but we will do well, and the drug will do well. Now, how do, how do you explain that behavior, Tucker? I am going to say something which may sound very controversial, but is evidence-based. So when one looks at the entity, the legal entity that is the corporation, um, the eminent forensic psychologist, Dr. Robert Hare, who was behind the original uh, international definition of psychopath, okay, in a, in a book and a documentary by law professor Joel Bacan, he says that these corporations, like pharma, for example, they often, in the way that they conduct their business, behave like a psychopathic entity, like psychopaths. So what does that mean? Uh, callous disconcern for the safety of others, um, conning others for profit, deceitfulness. You know, they fulfill that criteria. So if one, if, with everything I know, taking a step back, trying to understand, hold on a minute, why, certainly the US and many other countries around the world, are they, did they mandate, are they pushing the vaccine on kids? I think this is the downstream effect, my hypothesis is this, of a psychopathic entity that has had increasing, unchecked, visible and invisible power over our lives over the last three decades. I believe that. And I think the only way to address this problem is to tackle it at the root, which is, for example, my solutions are these, some very straightforward, simple ones. Although drug industry can be involved in developing drugs, they shouldn't be allowed to then test them and hold on to the raw data. The regulators shouldn't be funded by industry. Of course not. And politicians should not be taking money for campaign donations from Big Pharma. One of the primary purposes of government, Tucker, let's just go back to the basics, is to protect their citizens from external aggressors, but also to protect their citizens from disease and to serve the interests of the people. And they are not doing that if oh, they are taking money from an entity well, that if the is FDA there. gets the majority of its budget from the drug companies, like, that's just insane. The, F- the FDA is the regulatory body yeah. that oversees the drug companies. So, like, how can that be? So, so one of the reasons this problem persists is because people don't really understand these system failures. I, a few months ago, during a meeting organized by the British Medical Association, gave a talk. 
and this was before I published my findings, and I, the, ch the chairman of the British Medical Association was there. He was shocked and gobsmacked when I told him that the MHRA in our country gets 86% of funding from pharma. He didn't know that. So a lot of the people who are making decisions and even pushing, who've been pushing the vaccine, don't understand the system failures that exist already. And one way of describing it is doctors, the general public and patients don't know what's happening and they don't even know that they don't know. And yet there is enough noise on the periphery about the vaccine that any adult with curiosity has to have asked himself at least once, like, what is that? You know, are these people crazy? Like, what are they talking about? The vaccine has problems. Physicians are paid to be curious. Science is curiosity, of course. And I have to say, with respect to you as a doctor, but I am so distressed by the willingness of smart, well-educated people in the medical profession to go along with this in the face of mounting evidence that they're wrong. Like, what is that? So I think, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So how do we combat this? There are two psychological phenomenons I think are worth mentioning. One is fear. So imagine yes. at the beginning of the pandemic, people were very scared. Yes. Understandably, it was, you know, let's not deny that the original strain and COVID, oh, man. especially for the elderly and vulnerable people, it was devastating. And, and no the, lack of, the lack of knowledge about it. Like, you didn't know it, it just happened. Absolutely. Like, but fear clouds critical thinking. That's correct. Right? The second phenomenon combating this problem now is something called willful blindness. So it's human beings turning a blind eye to the truth in order to feel safe, to avoid conflict, reduce anxiety, and to protect prestige. How do we combat that? It has to be with cold, hard facts, and it has to be done, I would say, in a compassionate but courageous way. I have sat with journalists, some of whom who were very strong proponents of even suggesting maybe we should pin down unvaccinated and vaccine, you know, and inject them with the vaccine. And in an hour of a conversation, talking, walking them through it, and also because I had the vaccine, I think that people are maybe more likely to listen to me. Um, that's the way we have to do it. And we have but, to make but, this. So you're obviously, I, I say, an acute analyst of systems. Like you think systems, to some extent, determine outcomes. I think you're absolutely right. And you're good at analyzing it. We seem to have a system where prestige, something that every person wants, you just mentioned it as a motivator of human behavior, is tied to agreeing with the group. In science, that's death. That's the end of science. Yeah. You, we have to attach prestige to free inquiry. Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good point, actually. I'm glad you mentioned that, Tucker, because I thought about... So Anthony Fauci, throughout the pandemic, especially in relation to the vaccine, kept using this term, trust the science. Yes! Now, that's one of the most unscientific statements exactly. I've ever heard. Exactly! I kept right? thinking that. Because medicine, first of all, is not an exact science, right? It's an applied science, not like physics or chemistry. Right. And, this, and, and the evidence changes. We're taught, for example, that 50% of what you learn in medical school will turn out to be either outdated or dead wrong within five years of your graduation. The trouble is nobody can tell you which half. Right. You have to learn to learn on your own. Right? Yeah. So that didn't make any sense. So maybe Anthony Fauci doesn't, from my perspective, what I've seen, doesn't seem to have a basic understanding of evidence-based medicine from what I've seen. That's Seems that way to me too. But in reality, and I don't mean that he was deliberately doing this, but in reality, from what we've discussed already, trust the science, in effect, was saying trust the psychopath. Yes. I mean, it's a kind of witchcraft. Trust the science? What does that even mean? Yeah. Um, but that suggests a systemic failure. So if that guy's at the head of the system that we've yeah. assembled to combat COVID and you don't have thousands of clinical physicians saying, wait, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. And we did not have thousands saying it. We didn't have, we didn't have dozens saying that. That's a huge problem. Is this a med school problem? No, it's, I think a little bit of the med school problem. I think one of the issues, I mean, I campaigned and, um, with the British Medical Journal and the Medical Royal Colleges in the UK in 2015 when I realized that we had an over-medicated population and, and the medical profession themselves needed to do something about it. Um, and I wrote a paper, co-authored it with some of the top doctors in the UK in the BMJ, uh, and it was basically the Medical Royal Colleges campaign to wind back the harms of too much medicine. And part of that recommendation... Tucker was actually helping, you know, through medical school to teach for, for doctors to learn how to critically appraise data, yes. but also even the stuff I told you about statins. Most doctors don't have conversations with patients that way about the 1%, but actually 
it's already there, established in the literature, that when you practice ethical evidence-based medicine, you must use transparent communication of yes. risk and benefit yes. and through informed consent. Because if you don't do that, you're not going to get the best outcomes for patients. And of course, for me, I'm a very strong proponent of individual preferences and values. Of course. One patient might come to me and say, listen, I'd like to take a pill on that data. And the other person may say something different. And you support them in that decision-making process. We've lost that completely throughout the pandemic. And it's time to reform the system. And ethical, I mean, look, ethical medicine from an outsider's perspective requires informed consent. It can't, you can't have ethical medicine without that, correct? Absolutely. But that whole concept seemed to evaporate. Completely. Completely. What so, the hell? So, so, so we need to. So the first. So what we need to do is make people aware of the problem, right? And then, and and spell it out to them. And hopefully, you know, I think the American population, when they hear this, um, people are going to get upset and angry. But I think um, they need to just ask those questions of their of their doctors. And doctors also need to understand this as well. You know, it's our job to keep up to date with the evidence. But when the evidence changes. To maintain trust, we must change with that evidence. It's really important. To I maintain to do trust. That. So I wonder, I always wonder this. I had a doctor to my house for a cocktail party on Friday night. I didn't say this, but I kept thinking, do you understand the degree to which confidence in doctors has been undermined by the last two years? Do you think doctors understand that? Among people like me who are very pro-doctor, just yeah. not always respected they're, they're still Doctors are still one of the most respected professions. For sure. And everyone um, wants to respect doctors. I have loved the doctors who yeah. treated me. But watching this over the past two years, I mean, yeah. it's making people very skeptical. But, but since the 80s, certainly in the U.S., um, Tucker, I've looked at this information, this data, trust in doctors has declined as the system has become more commercialized and marketized. Huh. Right. And one of the reasons for that is when you bring commercial interest, commercial interest shouldn't even be part of the doctor-patient conversation, right? Because often doctors are ordering tests and treatments because they're getting reimbursed financially. And that completely is at odds with ethical evidence-based yes. medicine, right? There's an asymmetry of information. The doctor knows a lot more than the patient. The patient trusts the doctor. But the doctor either consciously or unconsciously is engaging in medical practice that is financially rewarding them rather than putting the patient interest first. In the UK, one of the reasons I'm a very strong proponent of the National Health Service is we know that quality of care, if it's done properly and ethically, I never had to think about uh, a financial incentive when I was managing a patient. I said, what is the best course of action for this patient? I know in the US it's different. And it's very interesting. The US spends um, $3.5 trillion dollars you know, 18% of its GDP on healthcare, but has one of the worst healthcare outcomes in the, in the Western world in terms of their population. In the, and one of the reasons for that, there's a, very clear, there's a great graph. Um, there, in states throughout the United States, where there is more healthcare spending, right, there's an inv- it's inversely proportional to quality of care and patient outcomes. So what I'm saying is, and I, I'm, I'm going to be writing about this soon. Why you, is that? You can improve quality by reducing cost just by informed consent. And the reason for that is, when you look at data and information where doctors and patients engage in true informed consent, where the information is given to them in the way I described, for example, with statins, most people, most patients decide to go conservative. They'll have less surgery and they'll take less drugs. And when you look at the outcomes, they're no worse. If anything, they're better and the patients are more empowered. The drug thing, one of the reasons I was not surprised by the medical community's response to the vax is that it was consistent with what I have seen over the past 20 years, which is a big change, where doctors will like prescribe any drug that you asked for, basically. There's a lot of drug prescribing going on in this country. It's very obvious that the data illustrate how widespread it is. What is that? Yeah, I think it's, um, I call it a pandemic of misinformed doctors and misinformed and unwittingly harmed patients, right? So the clinical decision-making that doctors are using to prescribe is essentially being influenced in a negative way by a number of factors, right? So we've talked about them, but I'll just go through them again. Biased funding of research. Research that's funded because it's likely to be profitable, not beneficial for patients. Biased reporting in medical journals. Biased reporting in the media. Biased patient pamphlets. uh, Defensive medicine. Commercial conflicts of interest. And last but not least, an inability of doctors to understand and communicate health statistics. So it may, it's not rocket science, you know, breaking down information in a way that patients can understand. But what happens is doctors make decisions in a very black and white fashion. They read a medical journal, they look at the conclusions, this drug's beneficial, okay, take this pill. Take this statin pill, it's going to save your life. 
actually, the reality is it's probably most likely not going to save your life, but you have to tell patients that it's a 1% benefit, right? And that doesn't happen. So we need to completely transform the way we practice medicine. And again, Tucker, we haven't mentioned it yet, but the other side of it is all the lifestyle diseases that we haven't dealt with, right? So you look at obesity, even with COVID, 90% of the deaths globally happened in countries where more than half the population were overweight or obese. We see it in the UK. We had 175,000 deaths. Only 10% of those deaths were purely because of COVID. People had all these other chronic conditions. Is that why Africa dodged the death rates? It's very interesting. Yeah, I, I, it may well be. It may be a big factor. But, so if we get people's lifestyles better, Tucker, we would never have, if, if, if in fact, if we'd sorted it out years ago, when we knew there was a big problem, and a lot of this is about food industry and food addiction and engineering foods that are going to be oh, yes. hyper palatable and all the marketing that goes with it. One of the ways I look at, for example, the, the, in a very simple terms, a very a good kind of low-hanging fruit, I tell my patients, avoid ultra-processed foods, right? Half of the calories in the British diet and more than half of the calories in the US diet come from ultra-processed foods. What does that mean? Industrial, industrially produced products, packaged foods, very simple definition. If it has five or more ingredients, if you can read five or more ingredients on the packet, it's ultra-processed, don't eat it. What's happened is these combination of ingredients, the sugars, the refined carbs, some of these unhealthy oils, they're combined together to be made hyperpalatable, probably addictive to some degree, right? Oh, of so course and they addictions are. are opposite of free will. Of course will, they are, right? yes. And then it drives over consumption. So how wh- where can we learn from history about how we tackle that? America, the United States, was one of the pioneers in the world of tobacco control, right? Um, I remember coming over to visit my cousins in California in the 80s, and we, you know, you had public smoking bans before we had them in the UK, right? It, it, many years later we had. And when you look at the, from a cardiologist's perspective, many people may, may not be aware of this, 50% of the decline in death rates from heart disease since the 70s and 80s happened purely because of reduction in consumption of cigarettes, okay? But how did that happen? From regulations introduced to protect their citizens, right? It wasn't, I'm not for banning things because that doesn't work, right? You know what happened with prohibition and alcohol in America. That is- well, it did work. It, it dropped cirrhosis <laughs> rates dramatically. Oh, really? Okay. Yes, well, it did. A- dramatically. Okay. And drunk driving. But, but, but whatever. It's, but, a, it's yeah. a trade-off. But, but basically, it's, you know, we call it the three A's in public health, right? You address the acceptability, the affordability, and the availability of these unhealthy products, essentially, right? So it was taxation of cigarettes had the biggest impact in reducing. So you raise the price, public smoking bans, for example, banning of tobacco advertising doesn't happen now. If we apply the same principles to ultra-processed foods, Tucker, I promise you, we would see, because dietary changes have a very rapid effect on people's health markers. I manage patients like this all the time. People reverse their heart disease risk factors within just a few weeks of literally changing their diet, eating real food, food that they can enjoy, but cutting out the sugars and the ultra-processed stuff, we would see on a population level, the obesity rates decline within a few years. So, so that, I guess, is a, I have so many questions for you and so little time left, but let me just ask one. Since we knew from early in the COVID, whatever we're calling it, pandemic, uh, that obesity was correlated with bad outcomes, the fatter you were, the more likely you were to die, you would think that public health authorities would start talking about obesity, which is, of course, a pre-existing problem here. There was no mention of that. They closed the gyms. They put gym owners in jail who tried to open their gyms on the base of no evidence. Like, what were we watching? Now, for the, you said at the outset you had a friend, a filmmaker, who suggested this was part of a population control effort, which seems crazy to me. I don't believe that. On the other hand, how do you explain that? If public health authorities are not are encouraging people to do things that will get them killed. Like, what is going on? It's called the corporate capture of public health, Tucker. Um, one of the most influential people in the pandemic, and I don't think in a good way, is Bill Gates. Yeah. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and they, Bill Gates influences many governments around the world. He funds media outlets. He funds the WHO through his foundation. He has a lot of influence on them. They are heavily invested stocks in McDonald's, Coca-Cola, and the pharmaceutical industry. What? Yes, absolutely. This is, this is in my paper that I published recently. I, I talk about that. So a lot of people who are controlling the decision-making have huge conflicts of interest. And they didn't... You're absolutely right. I was very prominent in the UK. I highlighted on Good Morning Britain in, in 2020 that Boris Johnson, our prime minister, who you may remember got admitted to hospital with COVID, very well. probably got admitted to hospital because of his weight. Then Matt Hancock, the Secretary of State for Health, asked me to advise him what needs to be done. 
Um, but I was a lone voice. I, I hammered it as much as I could trying to get in mainstream media. But it was like one or two days news ex- uh, versus a barrage of stay at home lockdowns, protect the NHS and save lives. They should have said stay at home, eat real food and save lives. Because actually we probably would have saved many more people very quickly if we had had consistent public health messaging on a daily basis of avoiding these sorts of foods that were associated with poor COVID outcomes. Did did Johnson ever come around on the vaccine? Very smart person, Boris Johnson, but he became, from my perspective, a kind of mindless advocate for mandatory jabs. Did he change his view, do you think? Yeah, I don't know, Boris, directly what he thinks. I have a lot of interaction with members of parliament myself, both from sides on the left and the right. Um, I was in the British Parliament a month ago, actually presenting data to a number of Conservative Party MPs who were gobsmacked when I presented the data. They are now advocates saying there's a problem. One of them even went um, later on. He was David Cameron's former speechwriter when he was prime minister. He's called Danny Kruger. And he said, and he's a very, you know, I found him to be a very measured person. And he got up in a debate in Westminster and said, I'm ashamed that I supported mandating the vaccine. The information has changed. There is a problem, right? So I think... Good to answer you. your question, I actually, I think, Tucker, I believe in the goodness of human beings. I think most people want to do the right thing. I agree. People want the truth and they hate to see injustice. And what we've seen through the pandemic is that people have lost access to the truth and therefore they can't see the injustice that would then change the system for the better. And that's what, through this platform, for example, I know you have a huge reach and I want every American citizen just to stop and think about how things have played out and do they really think their governments are doing the best for their population? Because it's very obvious that they're not doing that. Yes, and unfortunately, I'm, I'm sure the UK is, is different, but in this country, it became a partisan question almost immediately. And one side was on one side, the other was on the other side. And at, when that happens, at least in the United States, it's, it's impossible to have a conversation. I don't, I don't believe this is inherently political. I've never understood why it became political. Do you yeah. have any Yeah, idea it's strange. Why? I mean, I was in the States. I come to States quite a lot. I have friends all over the United States. I have relatives in California and in Indiana, doctors. And I remember when I started mentioning before I published, I said, listen, I think there's a problem with the vaccine. They said, Asim, you can't say that. They're going to say you're, you're right wing or you're Republican or you're a Trump supporter. And I said, hold on a minute. We this got the is, vaccine uh, from I, Trump. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I said, it didn't make any I said, sense. Yeah, politicizing medical discussion exactly. is an exercise in intellectual bankruptcy, Tucker. Thank you. I couldn't agree more. I could not agree. And just for the record, whatever you think of Donald Trump, he is still defending the vaccine. So, like, I don't, I don't, I don't see how this works. And I don't, it's so not political inherently. The fact it was made political instantly suggests there were other agendas at work that I don't understand. Yeah. And I think, to be honest, I think that if the data is presented to these people, if they see what's happened and they understand the roots of the problem and how they were deceived, then they, co- they won't be able to unthink it. I think President Trump, if he knew the information that I know, he would come out and say, listen, we did what we thought was right at the time. The information has changed. We need to stop. There's a problem here. And we need to reform the system so that these, that the, you know, that these medical institutions and the government are actually working for the people not against them. So we had, amen, we had a a couple of people in this country um, with, you know, impressive resumes, who are widely respected, uh, who piped up early and suggested that what you have just proven to be true might be true. And in a pretty measure, Dr. Peter McCullough was one of them. Bobby Kennedy was another. Um, I don't know what McCullough thinks politically. Kennedy is a Democrat, of course, obviously. Uh, and they basically, their lives were destroyed. For, I mean, for, for real, as, as you know. I mean, they paid a cost that was just would have been unimaginable two years ago. Really shocking what happened to them. What happened to you when you said this in the UK? It's interesting. I had a number of cardiologists from different London teaching hospitals relaying information to me saying, well done. Really? Two cardiology departments have information I've got from people there said that they said that we're not going to have any more boosters or vaccines. It made sense to them. So I got all this behind the scenes congratulations, but they're afraid to speak out. So for me, that just confirms, right, of the, course the it's situation. Um, it's not easy, Tucker. Let's put it this way. Uh, this is, you know, I, I, I follow and I like a lot of the work that Jordan, I know you've inter- interviewed Jordan Peterson. Yes. And I've kind of done this throughout my career. Is for me, it's about doing the right things, about scientific integrity. It's about putting my patients first. But that involves not being afraid to speak the truth. But when you speak the truth, 
you have to let go of the outcome. Because even if it's going to give you um, a problem in the short term, a lot of people are afraid, by letting the issue sort of grow, the elephant get bigger and bigger and bigger, it's only going to be a much bigger problem further down the line unless you speak the truth. So for me, I knew that I was going to get pushback. Um, and I think that in public health advocacy, as soon as your work threatens an industry or an ideological cabal, you're going to be attacked, sometimes relentlessly and viciously. And I've had that when I, I was one of the first people in the UK certainly to highlight the harms of sugar, right? And I remember being called yes. a quack, and I had all sorts of stuff behind the scenes. You called a quack? Yeah, calls for retraction of a paper I wrote in the BMJ about statins being overprescribed. So I've been through all of this, right? So you have to grow a thick skin, um, and I've been smeared, and you can go on the internet and you'll find those sorts of things. But for me, um, it's, it's about doing the right thing. And uh, it's, uh, it's not easy, but someone has to do it. When you tell the <laughs> truth, you have to let go of the outcome. Yes. I think that's... So I want to end um, by, and I, I was going to put this up earlier, but then I thought, you're such a rational thinker. I, I wanted you to make the whole case. But you did make an emotional appeal, which I felt was very affecting. Um, and you put this on Twitter, and I want to put it on the screen for our viewers. And it's about your dad. Uh, and it says, we can have it right there, Goodbye, Papa. I promise you with all my heart I will ensure that your premature passing will not be in vain and that we achieve justice for those who have suffered unnecessarily from an mRNA jab that should likely never have been approved and certainly not without informed consent, period. And you've got three very sad pictures of your father's service. Um, do you think about your dad as you do this? Yeah, I mean, I learned, learned a lot from my dad. He was a very um, moral person. He was a very compassionate human. So was my mom. So I think, like all of us, we are shaped by our parents. Yes. And I feel lucky, although they went prematurely, both of them, I learned a lot from them. And they gave me the strength to carry on and, and continue to do what was something almost drilled into me as a kid, is that your primary service is to the community. Right, you put the community first. And of course, as a doctor, that's why most of us go into medicine, right. because we want to we actually help our patients and, and relieve suffering. So um, they gave me both, gave me a lot of strength. And uh, yeah, I do miss him, but I learn a lot from him, and uh, I will carry his wisdom forward. Amen. I appreciate your spending all this time with us. Thank, Thank you, you, doctor. Tucker. Appreciate it. Tucker Carlson today is the name of the show. New episode three is a week on Fox News. Of course, we'll see you every weekday at 8 p.m. on the Fox News channel.